Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Handwoven, Piecework, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. Trainway Silks is where weavers, spinners, knitters, and stitchers find the silk they love. Select from the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trainwaysilks.com. You'll discover a rainbow of colors thoughtfully hand-dyed in Colorado. Love natural? Trainway's array of wild silks provide choices beyond white. If you love silk, you'll love Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Long Thread Media co-founder Anne Marrow. Lisa Chamoff is the founder and owner of India Untangled, an online marketplace and event that connects yarn lovers with independent dyers and yarn producers. So Lisa, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Anne. Now, I first heard about India Untangled as this incredible event, but there's a lot more to it than that. Is that right? There definitely is. So I launched India Untangled, the website, in April of 2014. So it started off as an online marketplace for indie dyers, um, also designers and other makers of accessories for crafters. So like project bags and stitch markers. So yeah, it came about through conversations I was having with friends on Ravelry. I knew many dyers and makers who were on Etsy or had launched their own websites and were finding it challenging either to navigate the landscape of Etsy or to stand out when they moved to their own websites. And I just thought it would be a great idea to have one way for people to find out about all these talented folks. Instagram was around back then, but it wasn't the the powerhouse we know it as today. And that was kind of, it became where a lot of people went to find out about new dyers. But I always saw India Untangled is really the way to, to learn about it if you were focused on crafting and fiber. And then the event happened later that year. So it was my first Rhinebeck. I had been going to the New York Sheep and Wool Festival for a few years before that and wanted to come up with a way to sort of introduce Indian Untangled to the, the wide audience that comes to Sheep and Wool. And the event sort of became a, a little more synonymous with my business, but Indian Untangled has so many aspects to it. That's really ambitious to say, okay, I'm going to start an online marketplace in, you know, an environment that has some resources, even if they're not suiting everybody's needs. And then to say, I'm going to go to the New York Sheep and Wool Festival sort of area and put on an event. I think it was it was a very natural progression for me. So just as a crafter, I gravitated towards hand-dyed yarn and the people behind them and the business in general and also the event just grew kind of organically from my relationships with people in the industry. And I guess looking back, it seems pretty ambitious. I mean, I had, I guess, sort of big dreams, you know, like back then Ravelry was the place and it was this wonderful success story of a small business kind of harnessing community support and getting enthusiasm behind it from members of the community. So it was, I guess, wildest dreams kind of thing that India Untangled would 
become what it became. But it's still a very small business, even though it has a lot of moving parts. So when you say what it would become, what would you say defines it now? Like when you tell people India Untangled is a blank, what do you say? I guess I do tend to still use the word marketplace or or resource for discovering hand-dyed yarn, kind of like a jumping off point for exploring the world of small-scale yarn and fiber creation. Yeah, so the the event, it's very well known, but it's still fairly small scale, the sheep in New York Sheep and Wool Festival event. I could certainly, you know, expand it to multiple days and and accommodate larger numbers of people, but it was always an offshoot of the festival and not necessarily something I had ambitions to eclipse in the festival itself, which, you know, would be impossible because it's such a a large, wide-ranging event that draws tens of thousands of people. And then, you know, not wanting to lose sort of that intimacy of being able to have great conversations with dyers and and makers and serve as kind of a a smaller scale, lower key (laughs) gathering place. So I haven't actually been to India Untangled yet. Mm -hmm. Maybe next year. Living in Colorado, I don't get back to the New York Sheep and Wool Festival as much as I would like. But what is the India Untangled event? So the New York Sheep and Wool Festival, it's been around for the past 40 some odd years. And it's sheep farmers, wool growers from New York State and the surrounding areas, so New England as well. And the festival, you know, they have vendors, they have sheep herding demonstrations, sheep to shawl, you know, spinning the yarn and creating garments. Um, And it draws, I think the numbers are like 30,000 people for the weekend. It takes place in Rhinebeck, New York, the third weekend in October. And it's just a gorgeous time in the area. It's when the the leaves are changing and you have that just fall festival um, atmosphere. So India Untangled, the first year I held it in 2014, it took place Friday evening in Kingston. So it's on the west side of the Hudson River, but it's a large-ish town that has a lot of hotels and um, including one that I stayed at. When I decided to hold the event, I held it in a a small meeting room at the hotel. There were about a dozen or so dyers, yarn companies. I envisioned it as a way for smaller dyers and yarn companies that either couldn't get into the festival or they were small and, and didn't have the resources to do a large show like that for um, the event to be a showcase for them. And then also kind of a gathering place for people as they were coming into town that Friday for the festival. I think that that shows a really interesting transformation in the New York Sheep and Wool Festival, where 40 years ago, it was very much an agricultural fair. And I think to some extent, weaving and spinning were a little bit more dominant. And in the last 10 or 15 years, this move toward knitting and especially hand-dyed yarns has been something that is all over the knitting world and especially also at New York Sheep and Wool. Definitely, yeah. So when I started going to the show, I guess it was probably 2011 was my first time attending the festival. And it has always been a mix of small farms. They bring, you know, the the small-scale yarn that they've created and lots of spinning fiber 
Um, when I started going, I guess my focus as a knitter then was indie dyer. So like Miss Babs and I think back then it was Sanguine Griffin was still around. So and those were the booths, dead lines <laughs> out the barns. And but the festival has always been focused on locally grown or self-grown, I guess. And it's nice to see. So they still really stick with that as a criteria when they're selecting their vendors. So they do accept a small number of indie dyers. And in the last several years, which I'm sure you and I will will speak more about, but there's been a shift of indie dyers looking to dye more locally grown wool. And it's been really interesting and nice to see that trend happening. It's sort of like a full circle sort of thing where I would say the, the majority of independent dyers, they use treated superwash wool. So the idea is that you can machine wash it and um, and dyers have tended to gravitate towards superwash wool because it it absorbs the, the dye more quickly and, and results in a more saturated color. But there are a lot of dyers who have been experimenting and, and some even transitioning to dyeing only non-superwash wool. So the the festival has sort of, I think, transitioned and, and followed that trend as well. The superwash and indie dyers was also paralleling the sock knitting and then followed by the fingering weight shawl craze. So these things kind of travel together. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, I guess, a whole trend cycle that predates even even me as um, as starting uh, Indie Untangled. And so I first started knitting in 2007. And I think it was like within a couple of years where I like I joined knitting groups and learned more about different companies and different dyers and yarns from um, the people I met in those groups. And yeah, there was already, you know, trends that were bubbling up and it's been so interesting to see the the evolution of the the industry and, and the craft. I do think it's exciting, not only because I'm interested in heritage breeds and unusual bases, but because I have a huge amount of sock yard to see dyers branching out and experimenting with different yarns. Right. It's interesting to see. And I've seen projects where people will use superwash and non-superwash yarns together and designers creating designs or, or just um, crafters taking it upon themselves to to use their, you know, the stash that they have in interesting ways. And uh, yeah, there, there's so much potential. And it's, I've always seen independent dyeing, indie dyeing and dyed yarns as an art form in and of itself. It's just a bit more accessible when you're a collector, you know, to purchase a, a $25 or $30 or even $40 skein than, you know, a $2,000 piece of art. But it's, I feel, it's the same method of communication. You know, you're communicating um, a color story. And I think there's there's also the additional potential of what it can be. So we, even if you're even if you're collecting yarn and, and have a sizable stash, there's always that like potential for what the yarn can become that transcends just the fact that it's some string. <laughs> <laughs> now, over these years, you've seen a lot of different 
trends in yarn. How do you decide what you're interested in featuring next? So Indian Tangles serves as a marketplace and the, the dyers and other companies pay to advertise on my site. And then each week in uh, my newsletter, which comes out every Friday morning, it's basically a recap of what's available, what's new that week, and sharing the stories behind those products. So I knit personally and also sell yarn in my shop. So a lot of those reflect what I'm interested in. And I think it's it's hard to really pin down like exactly what I'm drawn to, but I will say, you know, whatever the personal story is behind the colors, you know, if it's a colorway collection that's themed around something that speaks to me, I'll also look at patterns and and just what I'm in the mood to to knit and really what's coming out and what fits my personal style. Um, I'll certainly knit some things that might fall out of that, but yeah, I guess for the, for the most part, it's it's like any other crafter that is choosing to commit their their precious time to to making something that that speaks to them. So I guess I should ask a little bit more about the structure of Indian Tangled as a marketplace. You said you sell yarn in your store. Right. So uh, so the marketplace, it functions as a blog. That's just the format it's in. So let's say a, an indie dyer comes out with a new series of colorways or they have a like a holiday countdown box and they'll write out a post, kind of kind of like an Instagram post. They'll add some photos and it will be published on the marketplace. And then I also have um, an e-commerce section of my site. So that includes, I collaborate with independent dyers on special collections. So for example, in 2017, I launched the Knitting Our National Park series of yarns. Yeah, so that that was an idea. I um, I love yarns that are inspired by photos, and I had followed the U.S. Department of the Interior's Instagram feed, and so they feature photos either contributed or there are park rangers or parks employees that take these incredible photos of the landscapes of the national parks. So. I decided I would collaborate with different dyers. So every other month, a dyer would choose a, a photo that they were interested in interpreting, and they dye up a skein or or skein. Some of them have done multiple colorways, and then I list it to pre-order on uh, Indian Tangled, and so that and that serves as an, an you know another way to sustain the business. So there are some where it's really the indie dyers putting forward what their vision is, and then there are some where it's more curated. Right. The Knitting Our National Parks series, for example, it's me reaching out to dyers that I think would work really well for that collaboration. Either they have an aesthetic that I think would match or just I'm interested in working with them. And sometimes they'll approach me and it'll turn into a, a fantastic collaboration. So Tammy from Wing and a Prayer Farm, who's um, based in, I believe it's Vermont, and she raises her, her own flock of sheep and she has a natural dye garden. 
and she was interested in collaborating and she she chose to participate and interpreted a photo of Grand Teton National Park with natural dyes. I think it was marigolds and some other botanicals. And yeah, that was an incredible collaboration, really, really fit in with the, with the theme of being inspired by nature. I think it's particularly interesting because I think of her as being in a particular place. I think of her in in a very Vermont environment. And I love the fact that she said, I'm going to be inspired to do something in Wyoming. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. And it it gave her the opportunity to to go beyond, I guess, yeah, what her usual dying inspiration is. And it's been interesting seeing the images that dyers choose. And I always let them choose. I, I guess occasionally I've asked for like a particular park. So, for example, over the summer I had a retreat at Mount Rainier. And so I I wanted the yarn to represent the location for the retreat. But usually I ask the dyers to go on Instagram and try to find a photo that really speaks to them. And yeah, it's been amazing. You know, they'll choose a photo of pikas. They're like little (laughs) rodents in Alaska. Tiny marmots. Yeah, right. And it's just one of those things you wouldn't think I guess you, yeah, you just wouldn't think about yarn being inspired by that. So Allie of Explorer Knits and Fibers, who's based in Colorado, that's the photo that she chose. This was a couple of years ago. And yeah, it it turned into just one of the most successful collaborations. So Pika's have, at least the the ones in the photo, had very like neutral kind of beigey brown fur. So she dyed two colors and the other was this rosy, pink that was, it must have been florals or it was part of the background of the photo. And those colors just went so well together. Now, I saw that your latest collaboration has to do with kind of unique yarns and heritage wools. Is that right? Yes. Can you tell me about that? This is something I'm really excited about. The idea for it has had evolved over the years. I'd been very interested in domestic wool production. I, I follow Clara Parks's community and also just the yarns I gravitate to in general. In recent years have tended to be non-superwash, breed specific. And my first thought was that, you know, there must be a way to work with small mills and help develop custom yarn in a more accessible way for indie dyers. Many dyers over the years have started working with small mills to create non-superwash blends that they then dye. And it can be an investment, um, especially depending on whether they choose to develop something unique. And a, a lot of dyers do want to do that because it gives them something special to offer their customers. It's a long process, especially as uh, a lot of mills have pretty long lead times and the upfront costs can be really high, especially if you want to lock into a accessible price. You know, you're a dyer, that's really a, a large investment. So I started looking into ways to form like a cooperative where could place a large order with a small mill and lock into those lower prices. So I, I began exploring that with Battenkill. They're a mill in upstate New York. So not too far from Rhinebeck. I'm sure you know uh, Mary Jean Packer. She's actually been a guest. I looked into that process and it was still 
because the economics of the wool production business is pretty complex. You have a lot of small farmers and many um, steps along the process. They're scouring. It's it's all very resource intensive. And I found that it would still take a while to create this kind of project on such a large scale would be, it would still be very labor intensive. And in the end, for it to be sustainable, dyers would be dyeing the same, you know, the same yarns. And while I'm sure some would be interested in that for their business model, it doesn't make as much sense for them to be offering the same things as somebody else. For me as a as a knitter, that entices me because I love supporting different dyers and working with colors from from different dyers and that whole creative process of matching yarns to a project, you know, is great when you're looking at all different kinds of colors and different artistic interpretations, but it didn't really make sense from a business standpoint. So after conversations with some people, I decided to pivot to offering it as a subscription where I would kind of do what I do best. So this is what I've, I've been doing for years is pairing together dyers and yarns and finding good matchups and then promoting those collaborations through Indie Untangled. So I'm launching the the first installation is going out in February and signups are open for the first uh, installment through the end of December. And it's a subscription that will go out every other month. And so it will be um, a small batch yarn created in partnership with either a farmer or a small mill or a small yarn company and an indie dyer. So I reached out to several dyers that I knew had experience dyeing on non-superwash yarns. And then I think in the future, as, as the project grows, I'll be talking to dyers who might do it on a smaller scale or and interested in expanding. Also, the minimums at mills can be, it's not just the financial, it's the quantity of yarn and independent dyeing, hand dyeing doesn't scale all that well. So you wind up with a huge amount of yarn and having to put color on it yard by yard practically. Right. Yeah. It's it's a very labor intensive process. And I'm a small business. I run in Dantangle from my Brooklyn apartment and I've managed, yeah, I guess it's of very similar resources um, as other dyers who die out of their homes and don't necessarily have the storage space for 5,000 skeins of yarn. So yeah, this is a, a way that they can experiment and, and try out different yarns. So I'm really excited about the first installment that's coming out in February. So the yarn is going to be a Coriadel from Rossmarm. And Amy, who is the owner of this family farm, um, a few years ago began working on creating a base that would be available for indie dyers. She did do a collaboration with uh, Destination Yarn that went really well. And I had been in touch with her. There's a Facebook group for folks in the fiber industry and had read about the fact that she was doing that and yeah, started a conversation and 
really excited to have her yarn as the first installment. And she's going to, she was matched with Plies and Hellhounds yarn. So Gabby is a dyer who's based in Connecticut. So Gabby has already, she has a line, a, a very small line of non-superwash yarn that she developed with Baton Kill. Yeah, is, is really looking forward to trying out the new base. And I think the installment will be very successful and then will help Amy um, market her yarn to other dyers. What are you going to follow it up with? So I've been in touch with a number of yarn companies and mills. One of them is Wool Dreamers. And it's... Oh, yes. Yeah. New-ish company based in Spain. And it's a really nice connection how I found out about them a few years ago. So back in 2021, I did a trunk show at Nitty City which is a local yarn store in Manhattan, as we were emerging from the pandemic. So um, it was outside and this woman, Martha Peach, came up to me and was really excited to talk to me and told me about her venture, which is became Wool Dreamer. So she moved to Spain and owns property there. I'm trying to recall what her background is, but she began working with a mill there. She had sheep and was trying to figure out a way to make that sustainable and market their yarn. So yeah, she created Wool Dreamers and Ramon is the head of the operations there. So they create yarn from Spanish sheep breeds. So Wool Dreamers was at H&H Americas. And so Martha's granddaughter, whose name is B, she is the director of operations. So I started talking to B and I guess she had asked me if I knew of dyers who would be interested in working with their yarn. They sell milled yarn that's dyed on a larger scale. And then they have the potential to create bases that are the natural colors that can be dyed. So, yeah, I'd been in touch with her. And then when the idea for this project came about, that was one of the companies that I wanted to work with. I saw their booth also at H&H Americas, and I thought it was so interesting. They're sort of doing, I'm not sure if it's quite salvage wool, but wool that would otherwise be either unused or seriously undervalued and putting it into this yarn. And when I think about Spain, you know, the merinos that are scattered all over the world that we have as a basis for so much of our wool industry are from there. But that's not necessarily what she's working with. I think that's so cool. Right. I attended Barcelona Knits a few years ago. And when I was there in late 2019, there weren't as many local wool companies. It was a lot of super wash yarns, but that's Along with the just general shift that's started to change. So there's a company, El Robledal de la Santa Mohair. So they raise mohair goats in Spain and create yarns with that. There's yarn that I started selling on my website. I guess it's pronounced Zoya Wool. So X-O-L-L-A. And that's Elena is the owner. She's also a knitwear designer. Um, and she has yarn that's raised in Catalonia from an endangered sheep breed there and then has it milled and processed locally. 
and then also dyes it. So there's, yeah, there's so much that's happening. There's tons in the U.S., but then also overseas. So also one of the Indian Tangled companies that I've worked with for a few years, I actually met them at Barcelona Knits in 2019. They're from Italy. Two women own uh, Lani Vendol, and uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing it correctly, um, Italian company. So they're in northern Italy near Bologna. And they met through spinning. And Italy has um, an incredible textile industry and background. But for the most part, they're importing fiber to spin at their mills and mostly for fashion. So Lenny Vendol mills yarn from sheep bred and raised in Italy, Abruzzo wool and also some local mohair, and they create some incredible blends, and then they hand-dye it. So countries and areas of the world that have this rich textile history, but have, I guess, started coming back to that, you know, on a, on a larger scale with these smaller independent companies. It's really amazing, and I'm so I'm excited to have Wool Dreamers as part of the, the Heritage Wool Collective. Um, there's also... And who's the dyer working with them? That is Megan of Magazine Co. So she is based in New York State. Um, and there's, I haven't scheduled them in the club yet. I'm, I'm hoping to, but there's a small mill in Australia. So I learned about through a knitting community, yarn community friend, this woman, Tosh. She has a company called Handmake Create based in Australia. And I became friends with her. She attended the New York Sheep and Wool Festival for a couple of years. And she had told me about um, this mill, Great Ocean Road Woolen Mill. They're based in Victoria, Australia. I think they had been closer to the the Great Ocean Road, um, but now they're in the countryside outside of Melbourne. They create yarns from local sheep. I mean, Australia has incredible sheep industry. And they pride themselves on sourcing fleece from, you know, a certain distance from their their mill. And they, they also use rainwater and so- solar power. And their goal is to be very low environmental impact. And, and yeah, so I, I got to actually visit with them. So my brother lives in Australia and we made the trip to visit the mill. And it was incredible to see just the small operation. And they have amazing yarns. I'm, I'm hoping to pair up uh, a dyer with them. I think one of the things you're hitting on is that as much as there's this interest in indie fiber and indie dyers, there's a need to differentiate. You know, after almost 10 years, do you find that your interest just generally evolves and you you find a new thing? Or how do you navigate that? That's an interesting question. I think it's as crafters, we tend to, I think, both look for what's shiny and new, but then also like to stick with tried and true things and people that we're used to. People in terms of, you know, dyers whose aesthetic really works for us. So I guess I I think for myself, it's a mix for me. Like there are dyers who come out with new yarns, new colorway series, and I'm interested in trying those out. Or also dyers who 
I trust them and their aesthetic. So a lot of dyers do these advent sets and countdown boxes, and it's this mystery yarn that you <laughs> you don't know what it's going to look like until you open those little packages. And so in, in some cases, it's just really trusting their, their color sense and, and knowing that it's something that you will enjoy and won't necessarily be disappointed in. And then, yeah, I, I think it's one of the exciting things about being a crafter, a knitter, a crocheter is just all of the, yeah, the new products and yarns and, and colors and tr- getting to try those out. Yeah, there's, there's definitely that certain dyers get a buzz ar- surrounding them and that can attract customers. But it's also just that excitement of hearing what a small business is doing and supporting that. I think one of the things we're talking about is that in some ways it's all about the yarn and in some ways it's about an experience larger than a skein of yarn, whether it's a connection with a dyer or a farm or, you know, feeling like you're part of a larger community, the way that knitting sort of has a connecting effect. Right. And it's definitely, that's a big part of what went into creating India Untangled for me is the idea started out based on those conversations with dyers who, you know, there are some who they would have a shop update and it would sell out in five minutes. Uh And so it felt like here's a way to provide useful information to people. And then there are also small dyers who, you know, they'll they'll have a core group of customers. But then when I introduce them and someone many people have have never heard of before, and then they hear about them and it, it helps their business. So there is definitely that connection And especially with a purchase that you're making with the plans or hopes to (laughs) to be sitting with it for hours, hours upon hours. (laughs) And yeah, I guess that connection helps and it, it spurs on your own creative process. And I think also crafting is such a community endeavor. Yeah, there's that connection that we want to make. You know, the same is true for for any kind of purchase, whether it's clothing or crafting supplies. I mean, I think the like the slow fashion movement has many parallels with the, the crafting community. Obviously, you know, knitting garments or crocheting garments or weaving garments, spinning is a, a slow process. And I've seen kind of a shift, at least in general, but I know like personally, and especially during the pandemic, when the one way I can express myself, even though I'm not among people, is what I choose to to put on. And it can, you know, change your mood and make you feel something. So I got into the slow fashion communities. Um, there were a few on Facebook. So there's a brand called Not Perfect Linen, They're pretty popular among the crafting community. A lot of designers have used their garments, like dresses and skirts, in photo shoots for patterns. And I think that's how I found out about it. There was a designer who used, modeled one of her sweaters with a not perfect linen skirt. And I asked where it was from and found out. And then there's a whole community on Facebook, also Instagram, and there's a slow fashion trading app called Lucky Sweater. And there is a lot of swapping and buying and selling because if you purchase an item from Lithuania that takes four to six weeks to 
so their items are made to order and then shipping takes even longer and online shipping can be <laughs> very difficult and so if some if something doesn't fit but there's a community out there of, of people who it might work for so it's a, like a similar a similar idea people connecting with these slow fashion brands that are making clothes by hand you mentioned weaving and spinning. Obviously, we've been talking a lot about knitting, but do you find that many of your customers or members of your community, uh, I guess I should also say, are pursuing a variety of different yarn crafts? Yeah, I I do. I, w- I would say, I mean, knitting is, is definitely the craft that most subscribers of Indian Tangle customers do, and then followed by crochet, which is it's definitely seeing a resurgence. And weaving also, I think, has been seeing a rise in popularity. Definitely a way to to utilize stash <laughs> a lot more quickly or at least easily. Um, and there's always been a component of hand spinners. Those are still smaller segments of the market, but that's definitely a passionate group. So did you have a background in e-commerce or retail or... How did you come to decide that this was not only something that should exist, but that you should do? So I have a background in journalism. For many years, I worked for newspapers. So I uh, worked for a chain of daily newspapers in Fairfield County, Connecticut Mm -hmm. for about 11 years and covered community events and wrote feature stories. When I started knitting, I guess it was around, yeah, like 2009 or so. The newspaper company I worked for, the uh, the Stanford Advocate and Greenwich Time, wanted to focus on blogs written by their writers. And so I created a crafting blog called Make Me. <laughs> that was, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was interested in writing about what I was passionate about and finding crafters in the communities that I was covering. So in 2013, I was laid off. Newspaper industry, very volatile, still is. So I found myself with some time on my hands. I was interviewing for other jobs, and then I took on some freelance writing. So that was May of 2013 when I transitioned. And then I guess it was around August or September when the idea just, it was like a one of those cliche, like light bulb moments where I was thinking, yeah, there there should be something like this. And the idea did start off, I was thinking, oh, it should be an e-commerce marketplace like Etsy. Um, and I started researching online artisan marketplaces that were out there and started looking for like maybe a technical co-founder, like sort of going down the startup <laughs> rabbit hole. But I soon realized that just technologically, that was way beyond my expertise. I did end up hiring a design and development firm to create a website, and I decided to make it be more of a blog-like marketplace, so with the weekly newsletter as a key element. And that pulled together my experience as a storyteller and helping other businesses tell their stories, and then also informing people about what's what's new. So apart from the companies that you collaborate with in your national parks and your heritage dying, what's your relationship with the other companies that are 
featured on Indian Tangle? Do they kind of find you or do you go out and sort of build those? Um, I, I would say it's a little bit of both. So when I first started the site, I basically sent out emails and Ravelry messages to dyers that I was familiar with and thought would be, you know, a good fit for the site, like if they had regular shop updates. And it's since evolved. So now a lot of the companies um, and dyers find me. And it feels amazing, A, to, you know, have that word of mouth bring business, but also it's incredible just to see the number and variety of independent dyers. If you tell somebody who's not involved in the knitting yarn community, I like, I don't think they would believe you. Honestly, like <laughs> I, I feel like I learn about a new company every day. Almost. It does take a pretty large investment to invest in the supplies and, and the undyed yarn. But I think also as makers, it's maybe a natural progression for creative people who are interested in playing with color. It's kind of like the next step. And running a business is definitely challenging, but it's also, yeah, just a real expression of creativity to do that. And being a dyer and starting a, a business is it's a way to earn income and be part of the economy and use your talents and creativity to do something with a fairly flexible schedule. I think the business elements of it are not immediately apparent to folks who think, oh, I'm just going to put some color on a skein and don't realize not only the upfront investments, but the requirements that something be repeatable, all the different ways that are marketing. And when I think about what Indian Tangled is doing, there's a couple of problems I think you're solving for people in a really interesting way. One of them is that people talk about wanting to get into New York sheep and wool. You have to have a huge amount of inventory. And one of the things I realized talking to a friend who's an indie dyer is that you have to have probably twice as much as I see when I walk into the booth because it can't be empty. You know, as much as it might be fun to think about how you're going to do your merchandising and put your booth together, being able to supply all that. Right. So especially, right, at, at New York Sheep and Wool, it's a two-day show with twenty to 30,000 people. And of course, you know, not all of them are there to buy yarn or to buy what you're offering, but it's a lot of product to fill a 10 by 10. Um, and even... <laughs> yeah. Even at Indie Untangled, which it's on the, the smaller scale, but when I'm talking to dyers who are interested in vending there, I do say, and the other vendors who have done my show for a number of years, we have a meeting beforehand, and that's always a question that a new vendor will have. And so the other, other vendors will just be like, as much as you can, like whatever you think you should bring, just bring more because you know, also never know what people are going to gravitate towards. Like it, every show is, is different and what's popular at one show may not sell at all at another show. So it's an experimentation and you do have to be able to have a lot on hand and be able to design a, a booth display that can showcase it. And the other show that I saw, and as a consumer, it wasn't apparent to me, but when I talked to some of the vendors afterward, there was a show where they basically took as many people as wanted to sign up and whoever wanted to come and they didn't pay attention to the mix. So it turned out that there were a lot of booths that looked very similar 
and took almost all of their yarn home. And so making it a little bit smaller, making sure that even if you don't accept everybody, that they're going to have a good experience. That's something that you're doing both for your vendors and your customers and your knitters. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely what I look at. So India Untangled for the pre-Rhinebeck show, that's definitely grown and expanded, obviously, you know, starting with as few as a dozen vendors. And now last year we had about 30 vendors. And so I do try to include a variety of different styles. So there's room for bright Superwash Yarns. This year we had Mitchell Wool Company. So they are a Michigan family farm that creates yarn from their flocks, as well as um, there was a new project that they had called American Fiber, where they act as a, a resource for small farms. And yeah, they, they have a really interesting story. So they had representation there. There was a hand spinner this was actually Sandpiper Yarns. She's based in, in New York on Long Island. And I was familiar with her because one of my local yarn stores, Woolen in Brooklyn, carries her hand spun. And I had seen her also at the Kings County Fiber Festival. She's done some shows, but when I asked if she wanted to bend, there was a another vendor who a few weeks before the show, unfortunately, was unable to make it. And so I asked Sue if she could do Indie Untangled. And it was one of those, she didn't know what to expect kind of things. Her yarn is hand spun, hand painted, has a pretty high price point. I had a feeling that the people who attend my show would be interested in her work. And she had, I think it was the most successful show she's ever had. Um, and she was just blown away by the the response to her work. Like she had said, you know, usually she really has to explain what she does. And, you know, if there are people who are, oh, you're charging $40, $50 for a skein of yarn. Um, but the people who come to India Untangled, they know the the value of that. I'm sure a lot of them, aside from, you know, knitting, crocheting, many of them also spin as well, or at least know, know someone who spins. So they definitely understand the work that goes into it. Yeah. That is a lot. So I think for folks who are not part of the Indian Untangled community or perhaps part of your typical audience, sometimes there's a thought that I have to buy tickets to go buy yarn. You must get that question a lot. Yeah. Is So when I started off, it was really a small, you know, let's let's see kind of what happens. Also, it was when I started it, it was meant to be just this really casual, informal, like, let's get together on a, the Friday night prior to the festival. The idea somewhat sprung from attending the festival with friends and on Friday night. Um, so we'd all stay at the same hotel and then we'd it was like a huge group of people coming from all over. So they'd be traveling in, you know, either flying or driving. And Friday would be like the casual, like order pizza, sit in the hotel. I guess it was like the pool area that's a gathering space, like a courtyard area. And so some of the people in the group were dyers, project bag makers, and they would bring some of their items. It's like a pre-celebration. 
of the festival. And friends. Exactly. Yeah. It's like a true trunk show. I mean, they'd bring, you know, suitcases full of their yarn and bags. And so it was it was sort of with that in mind that I created the first event. And then it grew from there. So those first few years, it was, you know, I just I didn't think of charging for tickets. Um, even though, you know, of course it was a lot of work. All the you know organizing an event is is always a lot of work. But then as it grew and, you know, I started an application process, the work just got more and more. And then moving it to larger spaces that, you know, were asking for thousands of dollars and of course, all of the related related expenses that come with it means that in order to be paid for your work, you need to charge admission. And you know, so events like the, the New York Sheep and Wool Festival are volunteer run and also draw, you know, tens of thousands of people. So they do also charge admission. Even Maryland Sheep and Wool, which for many years had been no admission charge a few years ago, I guess it was maybe 2018 or so, started charging, you know, $5 admission. So there is, I think, a growing recognition that organizing events like this takes work. But I my thought has always been, you know, make sure to provide something for <laughs> for the mm-hmm. the admission costs. So like this year we had some live music and I've done for my shows timed entry just because even I guess it was 2018 when I expanded into a much larger space. It was about like three times the size of where we had been previously. But it's indoors and there's you know capacity limits. So and wanted to allow as many many people as possible to be able to to attend. So the yarn community in terms of events is very unique. And it's this phenomenon that I could really only understand if you've attended or or organized an event like this. They're very people are very enthusiastic. Like when I first started holding the show in 2014, 2015, we would come to set up at the hotel like around noon or so or one o'clock. I guess the show started at like seven. I'm trying to remember what the hours were, but it was later in the evening. You know, it was a hotel. So obviously people can just show up and they're staying there. But people would just sit out <laughs> in the hallway and bring their project. I mean, you know, they didn't mind waiting. And it was just like, you're here now? <laughs> like, first. I'm nodding because I knew exactly where that was going. <laughs> yeah. People are eager. They, they want the uh-huh. first crack at certain yarn and products. So in recognizing that, I did tiered entry. And I always encourage the vendors at my shows, just, you know, make sure to bring enough stock. I don't want to control their sales, but keep in mind, people are coming later. You know, if they're traveling from out of town, they can't get there at 10 a.m., even if they had wanted to. So some vendors have learned and they do pre-orders. So if you can't get it there, you can order it and they'll they'll ship it. But just in recognizing there's that enthusiasm and pricing the earlier entry a little bit higher and kind of similar to book sales or antiques markets that do a similar thing. I mean, I guess kind of similar, you know, antiques are obviously one of a kind and yarn is a, a little bit more scalable, but it's, it's still hand dyed and handmade, you know, especially if you're talking about hand spun. 
Well, and that also means if you weren't being able to cover your costs through an entry fee, you would be having to cover them out of higher booth fees. And so it's not always visible to the consumer, but it's there. Right. Yes. Yeah. And there, I mean, there are so many varied costs that pop up, you know, dumpster fees. I mean, it's the things you learn about. (laughs) Electricity. Plug in your phone. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And uh, yeah, that's one thing that I'm happy with the venue where we've had the show since 2021. When it started, we were at the Best Western in Kingston. Then in 2018, we moved to Socrates to Socrates Performing Arts Factory. So that was an old, I think they made composition notebooks. Oh my gosh. Yeah. it was, And it was turned into an event space. The couple that owned it still own an industrial laundry facility and then host weddings um, and also film productions there. Obviously, 2020 happened, so we went virtually. And then in 2021, kind of easing back into events, I was looking for something outdoors and not as crazy and frantic as as the previous years. And um, yeah, so we moved to Hits on the Hudson, which is an equestrian facility. So horse jumping and, and riding. They have facilities around the country. And I guess their season is in the summer and early fall. So by October, they're not hosting events. Yeah, the first year we did it in 2021, it was it's like this for every new venue. But or when I'm investigating venues like, oh, OK, yarn show. And you tell them how many people. Oh, OK, they're going to just trickle in throughout the day and they cannot comprehend (laughs) what the community is like, you know, just the enthusiasm Mm -hmm. and, you know, having to go in and stage everything. Here's where we're going to have registration and making sure we have the correct signage and and parking as well. Like we need parking attendance there really early because people are going to start to arrive. Yeah, it's just every year, you know, after that first year, there is that recognition like, okay, now we we understand what goes into this and yeah. they get what uh-huh. the event is about. It does remind me something like 10 years ago, there was one of the early large independent dyers who had a club. And after a couple of weeks of sales, the bank shut it down and said, well, clearly this is fraudulent and returned all the money because they could not fathom that somebody was paying money for yarn that wasn't actually being sent yet. And so thinking about the way the yarn world has kind of matured as an industry where we recognize these are people who are going to expect a certain level of service. And then we need to compensate people in the industry. Hopefully we're learning that. Yes, that's that's the goal. Yeah. It also, it seems similar and I'm not as involved or up on the fine art world, but just in either attending shows or like when I was in journalism and covering like local gallery shows, I, I guess it's in the mainstream. So And there are headlines, you know, artwork that sells for millions of dollars or thousands of dollars and people who consider it an an investment. And, you know, a a similar level of enthusiasm, I think, in the yarn world. It's a little different, I think, because we're making art ourselves with, with the supplies we're buying. And I guess, right, it's unusual for people to think that there is so much enthusiasm for the yarn itself. But it's that kind of same, I think, mentality, at least not yet. You know, the yarn collections haven't been recognized as like (laughs) long-term investments, but it could be. (laughs) 
I always think of it like wine, mostly because people who have wine cellars don't feel bad about how much wine they have, or at least none of the ones I know. Right, exactly. Or, you know, saving that bottle for a special occasion or even not even opening it. A friend of mine um, and my husband's, his father was a huge wine person, and he found a bottle with a vintage for the year his children were born. So even the 40s, you know, and... I don't know if they ever opened them, but it was just like, yeah, who would, who would think to collect wine that you would never open? But that's what people do, and it's meaningful to them. So, Lisa, you said that the sign-up is open through the end of December? Yeah, so the sign-up for the first installment of the Heritage Will Collective is going to go out towards the end of February. So I'm doing sign-ups for that first installment at the end of this year. And then if you go to my website and look at the listing for the subscription, you'll see there are various sign-up deadlines. So usually like a couple of months or so, give or take, before the installment goes out. And this gives us time to make sure we can source the skeins and then also give the dyer time to receive and dye them. Great. Well, Lisa, thanks so much for your time. There's definitely lots to explore. Thank you for having me. It was really fun to, to talk about it. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again. <laughs>